All right, Nick DiGiulio here on 720 WGN. Uh, we are live in the Skyline studio here until 4 o'clock. Uh, Barry Levinson from the International Mustard Museum is going to be joining us a little bit later on. Uh, and since I was not on on uh, Wednesday when we normally do Know Your Onion, we'll do another round of that uh, this morning, coming up at 3.30. Right now, uh, we want to welcome to the show the Chief of Sleep Surgery at Northwestern Medicine. Uh, his name is Dr. Michael Awad. And um, we'll talk about sleep surgery and also just, uh, uh, you know, obviously we have very strange hours. <laughs> and, uh, you know, us third shifters always have had issues with sleep and it just goes with the territory. So we, uh, we have an expert here to uh, talk about, Dr. Michael Awad. Let's welcome Dr. Uh, doctor, welcome to the show. Hi, Nick. How are you doing tonight? I'm all right. I'm good. How did you get into uh, the world of sleep surgery? How'd that happen? Well, uh, you know, sleep has fascinated me since I was a medical student, really. Uh, I actually come from uh, a bit of a line of uh, people who are interested in sleep in, in my family. And I was always mystified that this area of study, this area of medicine, this area of science, if you think about it, sleep is as essential to our human functioning as is breathing or as is your heart beating. And yet some people think that you can skip sleep, that you can avoid it, that you can live without it, or that even sleep is for the weak. But actually, uh, you know, when we think about a physiologic function that's as essential to our day-to-day functioning, to our essence as human beings, sleep, uh, and you realize just how undervalued it has been until recent years, it really fascinated me. Um, so what was your expertise before this? Yeah, so I'm, uh, by trade, I'm a head and neck surgeon. So as a head and neck surgeon, we're focused on essentially operating on anything that's above the clavicle. So that includes the airway. And the airway is really how I got fascinated by sleep apnea in particular, by sleep surgery, and of course, by an extension to that, uh, sleep medicine, which is really the field that governs all of this. And is really a relatively new field of study. I mean, if you date back to the origins of uh, sleep medicine, you know, the original sleep labs, as they may be, those are places that people would be hooked up to, you know, as many as 48 wires to have their sleep monitored overnight. Some of the first sleep labs really started in the 1980s in the dorm rooms of very interested college students at the time who are now, you know, fathers of the field. Uh, and we've lost, uh, we've lost a couple of those in this past year and uh, the past 12 months. But these are really the people who put this field forward and put it on the map. And if you think about it in, in medical terms or in scientific terms, 40 years ago is not very long. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And it started in dorm rooms. It did, believe it or not. Yeah, the original sleep labs were, uh, well, we think actually the original sleep lab may have been uh, started by a, a, a very, a very influential and prolific uh, scientist and researcher by the name of uh, Bill Dement or William Dement who unfortunately recently passed away, mm. had the great fortune to meet him this past year when I was working at uh, Stanford University. And he's, a, he's a, really a, a prolific figure in this field and, and a big loss. There was a fantastic New York Times write-up uh, shortly after his passing these last couple of months. Oh, well, I'm sorry about that. Um, so what, what, can you just describe sleep surgery specifically? Absolutely. So... 
Uh, there's a condition, Nick, that's called sleep apnea. Have you heard of it before? Oh, of course. Across yeah, before? absolutely. Yeah. One, my, one of my, uh, one of my uh, old roommates used to have to sleep with the mask. Got it. So just for the, the sake of the listeners, for those who haven't heard of sleep apnea, sleep apnea is a very common condition. We think it actually affects 20% of the, the American population. Wow, 20%? Really, 20, 20%? Yeah. Wow. 20%, if you can believe that. And some estimates may be as high as 25%, but realistically, we're probably closer to that 18 to 20%. Wow. Uh, but what's most interesting is that of those 20% who have sleep apnea, we believe still that about 75% of them are, are undiagnosed. So most people who have sleep apnea don't know it. Mm. How, how, well, how, is that so po- is how is that possible? Well, it's possible because... Sleep apnea is a condition that really only happens when you're sleeping. So essentially, it is a repetitive collapse of the breathing passage that happens multiple times per hour while you're sleeping. And actually, it can be so dramatic that you can have patients who are stopping breathing as many as 150 times every hour, like more than twice a minute while they're sleeping. Wow. That's, and because you're asleep, yeah, yeah, because you're asleep, uh, you're actually totally unaware of it. Often, it's the case that somebody may only tell you, "Hey, you're snoring really loudly." If you're lucky, you may get a really attentive bed partner next to you who says, "Hey, I've noticed you're stopping breathing while you're sleeping." But most of the time, uh, one of the main symptoms will just be snoring alone. Now, of course, if you feel tired during the day, even after you get what should be a good night's sleep, and we'll talk about what that should look like. But even if after, you know, say, an appropriate amount of sleep for your age group, which for most people is about eight to nine hours, you still feel poorly rested during the day. You have frequent urges to nap, trouble with your concentration, memory, focus, irritability, headaches in the morning. These are all potential symptoms of sleep apnea, but they can be subtle. And we can also think, hey, I'm just stressed. I'm overworking. Uh, and that, you know, we never make the connection to our snoring. And that those two could be a sign of a much bigger problem because we think that up to 70% of people who snore may have sleep apnea. Wow. Jeez, I didn't know know these numbers were that big, you know? Yeah, they're huge. I mean, it is is really a, a significant health crisis. And I mean, you might ask, well, who cares? So what if you had these, you know, breathing events or you stop breathing during sleep? Well, actually, we know that uh, you know, what sleep apnea can be associated with in the long term is that it dramatically increases our risk of things like stroke by up to 40 times. It also increases the risk of heart attack, high blood pressure, developing diabetes, and early onset memory loss or dementia, just to name a few. Wow. Okay, let me uh, ask you this. How does a, C- uh, a CPAP uh, actually work? Yeah, so CPAP is what's considered the gold standard of therapy for sleep apnea. So it's essentially a mask that you wear typically over the nose or over the nose and mouth, depending on, you know, what your your preference is and how you breathe at night. And what it does is it actually stands for continuous positive airway pressure. So all it's doing, in fact, the the first CPAP, just to backtrack a little bit if we go back into history, uh, the first CPAPs, which were described overseas or discovered overseas, they actually turned vacuum cleaners around backwards. So all they're doing is they're pushing out air pressure, which keeps that breathing passage open while you're sleeping. Because mm. if that breathing passage has a tendency to be kind of floppy and collapse down, uh, it's basically just think of it like a gust of wind that's pushing it open continuously throughout the night. And, yeah, these were the original machines were 
really just uh, vacuums that were that were turned backwards, so to speak. Wow. Okay, that's that's fascinating. So, uh, mm. sleep issues themselves. Uh, uh, h- how common are they among among people? Well, we know that up to forty percent of the American population will be sleep deprived at some point in their life. Okay, and that's a hard number to gauge because uh, sleep problems as a catch all can be a range. I mean, it can be something that's very short lived. It can be a couple of nights and it may not get counted. And then you have, obviously, sleep problems that tend to become more chronic. But definitely we know that at least 40% of the population will have some element of sleep deprivation during their life. And so to talk about sleep deprivation, because it's a big one, people often ask me, I mean, what is the single biggest way, the take-home message uh, that can improve your sleep? It's actually about sleep duration. So the vast majority of us undercut the amount of sleep we need. So for most people... Under 65, um, who are adults, we need eight to nine hours of sleep, according to the National Sleep Foundation's uh, most recent guidelines. And I I, I mean, you can tell me, Nick, but I I would venture to say that you probably would agree that most people are not getting eight to nine hours that you know. Oh, no, absolutely not. Exactly. And so that is the single take-home, that if you can increase the duration of your sleep, really prioritize it, You know, getting away from this really harmful mentality, in fact, that that sleep is for the weak or that, you know, you can get by without it. I think that's the number one way that we can actually improve our overall health and improve our sleep in a way. And it's important. It's not just about how you feel. Apart from the benefits of this making you feel much better during the day when you get in the consistent habit, we actually know that shorter sleep durations are associated with long-term health impacts. So shorter sleep durations are in, uh, increase our risk of cardiovascular disease. They may also increase our risk of cancer, according to some studies. So this is a really interesting finding. It's not actually just a matter of getting by and being as productive as we can on, on the shortest sleep possible. Uh, it may actually have a long-term impact on our health, especially as we get to those more dangerous numbers of six or less hours uh, a night. Yeah. Okay. Uh, doctor, hang on, Okay. Absolutely. All right. Dr. Michael Awad is with us, uh, Chief of Sleep Surgery at Northwestern Medicine. We're talking about sleep issues um, and uh, and many other uh, concerns uh, uh, about sleep. And uh, we'll get back to that conversation right after this on 720 WGN. Nick DeGilio here on 720 WGN, live in the Skyline studio here till uh, 4 o'clock on uh, this Thursday morning. Uh, Dr. Michael Awad is with us. He is a Chief of Sleep Surgery at Northwestern Medicine, and um, we're talking about sleep in general and sleep problems and issues and all of that stuff. Let's uh, say, uh, well, let's welcome Dr. Doctor, welcome back. Thanks, Thanks Nick. Uh, great discussion so far. And so I think when we when we left off, we were actually going to talk a little bit about sleep surgery. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we were talking about sleep apnea and, you know, this being a really uh, dangerous condition that most people don't know they have. And then we were talking a little bit about what we consider to be the gold standard treatment. That is the CPAP or, you know, what I jokingly refer to as the vacuum turned around backwards. Right. So, look, CPAP is, is a great treatment. When it works, it's fantastic. But it doesn't work for everybody, and it doesn't work for everybody because not everyone can fall asleep comfortably 
and wear a mask that's pushing air pressure throughout the night. Uh, and we know that CPAP is ultimately not going to work for as many as 40% of people who it's prescribed for. And this is really what got me interested in this field of sleep apnea surgery or sleep surgery, as, as we call it, is when I started to, you know, working as a medical student and I'm visiting these sleep clinics and, uh, you know, observing, learning at the time, and I was seeing all of these patients who were struggling with this therapy, and there weren't really a lot of other great options at the time. And so we started to look into, or I started to look into, you know, what is the latest and greatest, what is coming up on the horizon, and started to get very interested in this field of sleep apnea surgery, which is essentially, it's, a, it's an all-encompassing field of surgical treatments, which can be targeted to treat sleep apnea and hopefully get a patient off of CPAP or not have, them, uh, have the need for medical therapies further. Okay. So, uh, so, so that's exactly, that's exactly what happens then. So, so if, uh, if you have, um, let's say you have, uh, there are a lot of different sleep, sleep issues out there. Um, you know, uh, some people have, how, how, how do you, how do you help people with insomnia? Yeah. Well, insomnia can be caused by a number of different issues. Okay. Uh, but in general, the first recommendation is to go ahead and to get assessed by a sleep specialist. So the, the first recommendation would be you go to your primary care provider. That's usually your point of contact. And actually, when we talk about insomnia, there's this misconception that sleeping pills or sleeping tablets are actually the first-line therapy for insomnia. Okay, And insomnia is essentially, it's either trouble falling asleep or staying asleep. It can be divided into one of those two most typically. But actually, uh, you know, in, in my opinion, sleep medications are grossly overprescribed, and the, the reality is that they are not the first-line therapy according to the best evidence that we have today. In fact, psychological therapies, such as, as something called cognitive behavioral therapies, which help us to retrain our approach and our thought pattern in relation to sleep and to manage some of the anxieties and stresses that many of us deal with, day to day are actually the best way to treat its symptoms and ultimately manage insomnia versus sleeping tablets, which tend to be more of a band-aid solution. Mm, okay. Um, I've had uh, issues with sleeping pretty much my, uh, my whole life, uh, doctor. I, uh, it takes me a really long time to fall asleep. It's one of those things where like, uh, I'll get into bed, but my brain will still be working. You know what I mean? Like I'll, I'll, I'll be thinking about totally. what, well, I'll be thinking about what I have to do the next day or worrying about this or thinking about that. And it just takes me a very, very, very long time to shut down. Is that a common thing? Oh, that's so common. Uh, I mean, what you're describing is classic for what we call sleep onset insomnia in plain English. It's difficulty falling asleep. Right. And this thought pattern that you're describing about, you know, our brain kind of wakes up as soon as we go to bed, that's actually a learned behavior, believe it or not. It's something that becomes a habit over time. And as it becomes a habit, it becomes very disruptive to our sleep pattern. And so we start to associate the bedroom and the bed uh, with all kinds of things, you know, thoughts about work, thoughts about stress, thoughts about our finances. And obviously that type of stress response is very bad when our body should be kind of settling down and shutting down to get into a sleep stage or a sleep phase. And so that's why this idea of, you know, sleeping tablets, while it may actually help you get to sleep for a little while, 
uh, there is an element that can be harmful in using them in the longer term. And so when I mention these psychological therapies, what we typically recommend is actually working on some of the thought patterns that are associated uh, with this type of sleep issue in the first place and kind of curing it from the ground up. And and it's a very, very effective treatment. So for someone like you, if I can say, I I would definitely recommend that you look into it, usually in about four or five sessions, uh, you can get a really significant benefit in the way that you uh, fall asleep and stay asleep. And it can make a big difference to the way that you feel during the day. Yeah. Well, I mean, also, though, you know, it's 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 got to be a, more of a challenge uh, to consult people who work like the shifts that I work, you know, because I, I you know, I'm, I'm here till four o'clock in the morning and I usually sleep in the, in, you know, like in the middle of the day. Um, and it's weird. You yeah. know, for, and I, I, I've been a, a, a night owl pretty much my whole life. And I and I've been working the third shift for a long time, and and it takes it takes an adjustment. You know, it's 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 difficult for us who work the third shift to actually get sound sleep. I think. For sure, I mean, shift workers are in a tough spot, but it's not hopeless by any means. There's a lot of people uh, who dedicate their lives to to treating people with uh, shift work sleep disorders. But some basic tips that you can take away today, and some of the listeners who are on this call and and hearing us. Uh, can take away today. One of the big things about sleeping when you're a shift worker uh, and sleeping soundly is setting up your environment for success, okay? So if you're going home to sleep during the middle of the day when ideally your body is looking for those cues to be awake, and those cues to be awake that signal our internal body clock or our circadian rhythm are things like light, sound, uh, you know, food. Those are the kinds of things that do signal to our circadian rhythm that, hey, it's time for us to be up and active. Um, it, it's really important, first of all, that we set up our sleep environment for success. So that means if you can invest in blackout blinds, that's going to be one of the best investments you can make. If that's not financially viable for you, then something simple like a sleep mask is a great idea because light is a really strong indicator to our body that actually it's time for us to be awake. So training your body that actually now it's time for you to settle down and to get to sleep uh, is going to be very helpful if you can block out light. So blocking out light is a big one. Mm-hmm. Having a, a quiet environment around you to the best of your ability, obviously, if you have other people in the household who are up and active and just making sure they understand that this is important. Otherwise, earplugs can be helpful. And uh, <clears throat> the other one that's big for us is going to be room temperature as well. It's actually really important for our body. One of the key uh, measures that we look at when we're falling asleep is that our body temperature tends to drop by a couple of degrees when we're settling down to go to sleep. So actually setting your bedroom or your thermostat to a slightly cooler temperature, somewhere between 66 and 74, depending on your comfort. You know, uh, everybody's a little bit different. Yeah. Uh, But you want to be not too cold because that will also keep you awake. And not too warm, but somewhere in that vicinity. You know, I, I personally like to sit somewhere around 68, 70. Yeah. But everybody's a little bit different in what they find comfortable. So those are important. So light, sound, temperature. And then the other big one is caffeine. So if you're having, you know, a cup of coffee as you're finishing up your shift, it's going to be really difficult for you to fall asleep. And that's pretty self-explanatory. Most people know that. But I think a lot of people don't actually know just how long caffeine tends to stay in our system. So when we measure uh, the effects of medications and how long they stay within our system and, and, you know, understand caffeine is definitely, it is a drug. There's no question about it in the way that it functions in our body. 
we use a measure called the half-life. That's basically how long it takes our body to clear half of the, uh, you know, the volume of that particular medication or drug. So in the case of caffeine, the half-life is about five hours. So let's say you have a cup of coffee. Five hours later, 50% of that caffeine is still in your system. Mm. So that's a really important one to, to think about. People don't understand or don't really take in, on board how long caffeine actually stays in our system. Wow. Yeah. You know, I've, I've been off caffeine for 17 years, so um, that's, wow. that's, not, that's not an issue for me. But, you know, it's, yeah, and I've, I've often said this before. Uh, I was not pleasant to be around because I gave up uh, caffeine and nicotine on the same day. So... <laughs> Those are tough. I, I commend you for doing those at the same time, but you did well. Yeah, uh, it's it's interesting. So, so what about people who you know, they, like the uh, uh, w- how do you study the people you know w- with the sleep issues? Um, I, I know it's hard mm-hmm. for some people to be studied because of the masks and because of the, the being wired up and stuff like that. How accurate uh, a study can you do? Yeah, well. You know, there's a lot of different ways to study people's sleep. Uh, Starting at the basics, nowadays a lot of people are using trackers, and sleep trackers are becoming more popular more frequently. I'm having patients coming to me with, uh, you know, many months' worth of data, which is really helpful. But most trackers are not really at the point where they can replace uh, what we call our, our diagnostic testing. So the gold standard of testing is actually to go into a sleep lab facility. That's a a dedicated facility that's set up uh, for sleep testing. And you'll typically be wired up to a number of wires that will measure things like your brain waves, your eye movements, your heart rate, your breathing rhythm, uh, and your leg movements, for example. There's, you know, a number of measures that we look at. And that data is then analyzed uh, by a sleep specialist. And that can be extremely helpful. The other way that is, I think, becoming more and more common here in the United States uh, is actually with at-home sleep testing, but you'll have to talk to your provider about what's most appropriate in your case. Mm. Okay. Uh, Doctor, hold on, okay? No problem. Okay. Dr. Uh, Michael Awad is with us. He is the Chief of Sleep Surgery at Northwestern Medicine. Fascinating stuff. Uh, And we've got uh, more sleep issues to discuss right here on 720 WGN. Nick DeGilio here on 720 WGN. We are live in the Skyline studio here until 4 o'clock uh, on this Thursday morning. Uh, 312-981-7200 is the uh, phone number, uh, and that's the Team Hochberg phone line, 312-981-7200. Dr. Michael Awad is with us. He is the Chief of Sleep Surgery at Northwestern Medicine, and we're talking about uh, sleep issues. And, uh, Doctor, welcome back. Thanks, Nick. Um, what about uh, some of the habits that we need to break, like you know, like falling asleep in front of the TV and things like that? You fall asleep on the couch, fall asleep on a, on the TV. How disruptive is that? For sure. Well, let's maybe start at the top. Okay. I think especially during these times, as we are you know facing this pandemic and facing a lot of these unprecedented times that we've been going through. We're spending a lot more time at home, and so that can be very positive, uh, and there can be a lot of benefits to that. That gives us an opportunity to set our own schedule, to set our own routines. But it can also 
allow us to really slip out of rhythm in a sense because we're missing a lot of the important cues that are important for our internal body clock, that circadian rhythm that I mentioned before. Yeah. And so starting in the morning, one of the important things, again, you know, is to talk about light. Just like it's important to block out light when it's time to get to sleep, it's important to actually get exposure to light early in the morning. That can be really helpful to signal to our internal body clock that actually, hey, this is the time when it's time to be awake and active. So one of the things I recommend if, you, if you're fortunate enough to have some outdoor space you can, and you're working from home, for example, you can get outside. You can have, you know, whether it's your coffee or your tea or even a glass of water in a perfect world, uh, you can do that outside and get some exposure to light. That's going to be a good way to kickstart your internal body clock first thing in the morning. Mm. And then we talked a little bit about caffeine and long-term impact uh, that caffeine has within the body over many hours. But one of the other important and often neglected things is the role of exercise and physical activity. Again, you know, during these times, it's, it is difficult. Our gyms are closed. You know, our fitness classes may be, depending on where you are in the country, may be uh, not accessible. But actually just getting out and having a walk can really improve our ability to fall asleep later. This doesn't have to be very strenuous exercise. Uh, so whatever it is that you enjoy, whether it's a bike ride, a walk, a run, uh, whatever the case may be, definitely getting out and doing that during the day can really improve our ability to fall asleep later in the night. And that's because of this concept called sleep pressure. And what is sleep pressure? Well, it's actually this concept that we need to build up a certain amount of exertion or pressure during the day in order to actually fall asleep later at night. And if you don't fall, build up enough sleep pressure, it becomes very difficult to fall asleep later. And so exercise is one of the easy ways to build up that sleep pressure, so to speak. And that's actually a chemical buildup within the body that initiates sleep for us later in the night. So that's an important one as well. So light, caffeine, uh, and exercise are really big ones. And then we come back to light, I mean, uh, towards the end of the night. What do most of us do when we're in bed? Well, a lot of us, and I've seen this firsthand, are lying back on our phones, scrolling on Instagram or on our social media feeds or news feeds these days. Um, and that is a, really, is a really tricky one because every device that we have around us, whether it's your laptop, your cell phone, or TV is the same story, they emit something called blue light. And blue light is a particularly stimulating wavelength of light that, again, signals to our internal body clock that actually it's time for us to be active. And so avoiding these devices for at least an hour before bed is really critical to improving our overall sleep qualities. And, uh, uh, but, I, but, you know, that this is, this is common. It's become a very common thing now, doctor, that people just um, right on the nightstand, their phone, their phone is right there. Um, totally. I mean, even I, I had to break that habit. So I moved my charger to the other side of the room because it's so easy. Even you wake up in the middle of the night, you sometimes might be tempted to reach over and pick up your phone. Yep. And just that, you know, momentary exposure, even if you do fall back asleep, it can cause some minor disruption to the, your brain waves, actually, your sleep stages that you're supposed to be naturally going through. Uh, that can be harmful to your overall restfulness. Yeah. Um, what about uh, um, if you're experiencing some, some sleep problems, um, how soon should you seek professional help if, if you're experiencing issues? Yeah, it's a very good question. And so I would say, first of all, if this is affecting uh, your personal life, your interpersonal relationships, those are very good reasons to go and speak to a healthcare provider. And also, if your sleep problems are extending beyond two or three weeks, 
It's normal to have some adjustments in our sleep schedule. For example, if we travel to another time zone, come back, or we have a particularly stressful or anxious period, we can have a few days of of a bit of sleep disruption. And so you don't want to panic about that. But I would say if this is extending beyond two or three weeks, it's definitely worthwhile to go and chat to someone about it. Uh, Ideally, your, your primary care provider or a sleep specialist if you have access to one. It's a, you know, it's funny because um, I'm about to uh, take a vacation. Not, I'm not leaving town or anything, but I'm off next week. Right. And because I work the overnight shift, it's going to be a little strange, you know, be to to mm-hmm. to be home. And uh, I mean, I, I try to keep the same sleep schedule all the time because I'm a night owl, anyway. But sometimes it's impossible to do, especially if I'm off for like a week, like I am next week. Right. And I mean, that shows us uh, how powerful the circadian rhythm actually is. Because your body is always going to naturally want to revert back to a more normal sleep cycle. Uh, But you kind of took my punchline there, which is really how important it is for you to keep a regular sleep schedule, even when you're not working in in your scenario. Um, Otherwise, you're going to be finding yourself in a a state of jet lag, which can be tricky to to recover from. Yeah. Wow. There's so many uh, fascinating things. So that eight to nine hours is, is what we're supposed to get. Uh, what, what are people actually getting? Have you, have you, have you talked to people? What, is there an average that, that people are getting? Yeah, I would say on average, most people are getting closer to seven, uh, between six and seven. When we do large scale studies, uh, we see most individuals in the general population are getting between six and seven, which is a really significant reduction. I mean, it's a 25% reduction in the amount of sleep we're supposed to be getting. Wow. <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, is, are, are there, is there food that people should stay away from? What about dietary stuff when it comes to having sleep issues? Yeah, well, I mean, everybody's dietary tolerances uh, and restrictions are a little bit different. Yeah. But in general, you should you should avoid heavier meals and spicier foods and, of course, caffeine. And some of the things that may surprise you that do have caffeine in them, people don't often think about these types of things. But things like chocolate, candy bars, those things do have caffeine. Yep. Um, also, tea has caffeine, so those are important ones to try to stay away from. But again, heavy meals within four hours of bed, Spicy foods, those types of things can disrupt our sleep uh, a little bit later on. Uh, how many people, I mean, is it roughly, does everyone have, everyone in, 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 uh, in America have a, have a sleep issue at some point? No, uh, you know, not every single person, but I would say up to, up to 70% uh, of individuals will face sleep problems at some point in their life. Obviously, not everybody has those for a, uh, a chronic duration, but up to 70% of the American population will have sleep problems for some period of their life. Yeah. So it affects, almost, you know, more people than not, which is huge. Uh, let me ask you this. Um, are you, as far as you're sleeping, are you one of those people who can just fall asleep anywhere? <laughs> uh, I have had to train myself into a, a very rigorous sleep schedule, although this is what I do as you go through, you know, uh, rigorous training. Uh, although we are physicians, we're trained by physicians, uh, even during our residency training, you know, as a surgeon, we often spend, you know, I hate to say a couple of nights in a row awake. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so after, after, you know, finishing my training a few years back, really had to train myself into this new pattern and realize, you know, you, you never realize just how much productivity and um, ability you're actually missing out on when you're sleep-deprived chronically, and more importantly, when your sleep pattern is so irregular. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's fascinating stuff. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for joining us, uh, Chief of Sleep Surgery at Northwestern Medicine. Is there a website that people can check out? Yeah, absolutely. So you can head to nm.org, and you'll look up uh, it's, uh, Dr. Michael Awad, A-W-A-D. You can find me there. Uh, you can also find out more information about me at www.peaksleep.ca. Okay. And I'm also on Instagram at Sleep Surgeon. All right. And I'm noticing that uh, you, you are you Canadian? I am Canadian. Okay. That's right. <laughs> I heard. I heard a couple. I heard a couple of boots in there. So uh, that's <laughs> <laughs> hopefully no A's. No, uh, you, we're good. <laughs> All right, doctor. Thank you so much for joining us. Okay. Uh, thanks for having me. Okay, it's been man. a pleasure. Okay, Dr. Michael Awad, uh, fascinating stuff. Uh, Chief of Sleep Surgery at Northwestern Medicine. All right, it's Nick DiGiulio on seven twenty WGN.